Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. When the news broke that Elon Musk's attempt to buy the influential social media platform Twitter had met with unexpected success, Alan Jacobs wrote that Elon Musk could become the world's greatest hero by buying Twitter and then immediately shutting it down. 90% of its users would just take their toxic behavior to another platform, he predicted. But the remaining 10% would have a fighting chance of finding something better to do with their time. I couldn't agree more. And yet, in this episode, Cameron and I will move in precisely the opposite direction, devoting some of our time and yours to something that's going on right now on Twitter. It's going to be fun, but I'd better let Cameron explain. Well, I think it's fair to call this episode of The Commentary a special edition. Special in quotes. (laughs) Yes, in quotes. Um, There's a... There is a trend going around Twitter right now, and I want to talk about it. So this trend is among mostly nerdy theologian people. So for the record, let's stipulate that you had to tell me about this (laughs) because I'm not aware of any trends that are going on on Twitter. That's right. Yeah. Just so that that everyone knows. Right. So I discovered this, this trend on Twitter. People are sharing some of their favorite and not so favorite theologians of all time. And there are some specific categories everyone's going down through and, and, and sharing about. I've had some friends text me and ask me, who are your favorites and least favorites? And I thought it would be fun if we just kind of on the spot flew through this. I've put a little bit of thought into it in advance. I know maybe you have too. Um, to our listeners, none of this is a final draft. But we want to talk about some of the greatest theologians and maybe some underrated theologians as well. So the categories are favorite theologian of all time. A theologian I dislike, a theologian that grew on me, the most overrated theologian, the most underrated theologian, and the greatest of all time. So, Pastor Mark, I'm going to kick it over to you to start this off. (laughs) Who is your favorite theologian of all time? Oh, man, that's uh, a tough question. So, (laughs) there's a couple of factors that make that difficult. I think the first one is, you know, what qualifies you as a capital T theologian, right? I mean, there's some cases where I think like we all agree, yeah, that's definitely a theologian. And then there's others that, uh, you know, in, in the the sense that we're all theologians, you know, that's, yes. that's easy, but, uh, you know, you could be like a popular pastor and teacher, but does that make you a theologian uh, you know that's that's kind of rattling around in my mind um true so my favorite theologian of all time huh so like a lot of theology students the way i would answer that question has changed historically like okay. i've gone through periods and had different influences um i will say that the way that I came into theology was a little bit weird. And as a result, there's a part of me that resists the idea of having like a, like 
a single influence, <laughs> if that makes sense. Part of it is, is, is an anxiety. Like I never feel like I reflect the people who've influenced me. So right. if you said, you know, uh, you know, who's the theologian who your own thought most reflects, mm -hmm. I'm reluctant to answer that because I feel like if I, you know, put my thought out there, would my influences say, yes, you, know, right. you are my disciple? Yeah. Or would they say, oh no, I'm appalled. You've completely <laughs> misunderstood what I was trying to say. And I fear it would be the latter. So, um, anyways, that, that's my qualification. Yes. That, that We're not gauging influence necessarily. All very tentative and, uh, and, and so difficult, but, oh, favorite of all time. I think it's not going to surprise anyone that I'm going to go with Calvin. And I'll, I'll lay out sort of my, my rationale for this. Uh, some people would argue that, that Calvin isn't even a theologian, properly speaking. Like he didn't train in theology. He didn't go to theology school. He wasn't a schoolman. He was trained as a lawyer. And so he was a sort of an amateur theologian, I guess. But I think he was very uh, gifted and insightful, and maybe that unique perspective helped in that way. But what I appreciate about him as a theologian is the way that he deals with, I guess, like, let's say the intersection of biblical truth and something we might call like psychological experiential truth. Like, mm. I think he, he, he speaks to the way we are as human beings with a lot of insight, but it's an insight that's always, you know, brought to bear through some sort of a scriptural prism. And so I feel like I, I, I read him and I'm learning about human beings and I'm learning about the things of God at the same time. So yeah, and, and and he's also, I would say, the theologian who has most influenced me, um, although maybe not always in the ways that you would expect. You know, it's not that I agree with everything Calvin says. I will say, like, where I don't agree, I, I'm pretty circumspect and assume I'm probably wrong, but... but um, but just in terms of like my desert island, we're about to maroon you and you can have one book of theology. Yep. It would be the institutes and that should be an easy thing for me to say. Yes. <laughs> well, we got there. Eventually. <laughs> eventually. Okay. Well, um, my favorite theologian of all time is right now Herman Bavink. Okay. Who was a Dutch reformed theologian and... I think channeled the best of Calvin onward into his tradition and left the worst of Calvin behind. <laughs> there wasn't much, there wasn't much um, about Calvin that he had to leave behind, thankfully. But I, I do find when I read, maybe it's a translation thing, but when I read Bavink, he seems a little less polemical than Calvin seemed at times. Yes. I don't know if you get that, but I agree with that completely. Mm -hmm. I, although I, I, I think, that's maybe a characteristic of of the age yeah but uh but i think also the man i think bavink is is uh i don't 
know, more more of a scientist of theology and, and right. has a sort of objectivity, let's say that yeah, yeah is, is quite good. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's something that I really love about him is he, he seems almost like cool headed and he gives, he gives a lot of historical context that I just find incredibly brilliant. Like he, he just clearly knew so much and yet is hanging on to the orthodoxy of Calvin and scripture and distilling it all down. So his reform dogmatics is, I'm still working through it, but I find it, find it amazing. Yeah. Okay. I find no fault in you. Um, I think Pavink is a great answer and, um, yeah, like I, 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 I think we, we could even argue something like, um, there's a similarity in what I appreciate about Calvin and what you appreciate about Bavink, mm-hmm. which is the way that they bring, let's say the learning of their time to bear on the theological question. Mm. Um, you know, Calvin has a sort of, you know, Renaissance humanist background and Bavink has, you know, a 19th century intellectual background, but each of them is driven by a commitment to orthodoxy, but they're applying it through that lens of their time and their, their learning. And, and I think that's, um, admirable in both cases. Yeah. Well said. Okay. Next up is a theologian that you dislike. That's a tough one. Do you have anyone on uh, your mind? I, th- I think you should go first in this <laughs> one because I went first last time. Okay. Fair enough. You know, the, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of the appropriate qualifications. I put down Greg Boyd. Okay. Now, Greg Boyd is still alive. He's still a pastor up, I think, in in Minnesota somewhere. So I I put him down though because I he's just someone who's come up a lot in my life over my years. And I find myself always objecting to the things that he's 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 saying and writing, mostly because he has sort of pinned himself as an anti-Calvinist, you know, mm-hmm. like you're trying to get away, as far away from the the vision of Calvin's God is possible. And oftentimes I think, I don't know if he calls himself an Arminian, but you know, the Arminian sorts of camps can be the ones who caricature Calvin. And we've talked about that in the past, how sometimes people don't actually get Calvin for Calvin. And so Greg Boyd has said some things about God, not knowing the future, God being, you know, not being able to, not choosing to control anything. And, um, that's all that I'm going to say. So sure. I'll leave so, it there. I mean, and I guess we should, we should stipulate, um, in case it's not obvious, we're talking about like theology that you don't appreciate. It's not that you personally dislike. No, no. Yeah. I assume you haven't met Greg Boyd. And- <laughs> no, but I was, you know, the friend I was texting with actually gets his tattoos done at the same place as Greg Boyd. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so my friend, oh. yeah, my friend's in Minnesota and he, he knows Greg. So okay. if this gets up there, Greg, I'd love to get together sometime. Yes. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I, I will, I will let that pass without comment, but it's, it's, I don't want to show my age too much, but um, yeah. So uh, this one I struggle with a little bit and it's, it's for a completely different reason. I think um, Calvin was an easy answer for me on favorite. I just didn't want to come out and say it because it just felt like Oh yeah, of course. Too predictable. 
Uh, with this one, though, there's such competition. <laughs> um, and and I'm going to admit right up front that that my dislikes aren't necessarily the result of um, like deep knowledge. And, um, you know, I fear in some cases the theologians I dislike, I dislike because of caricatures, not, yeah, right. not because of, of who they were themselves. Like the, the old was, was, you know, Nestorius and Nestorian. Thing. Yes. Um, so having said that, um, I'm, I'm going to say that there's two that chafe. So one that does, but is not who I'm going to elect here <laughs> is John Wesley. Oh yeah. And I think it's because of the combination of, yeah, like, like, like the sort of dumb anti-Calvinist sentiment mm -hmm. combined with the, um, I guess the, the adulation that, that he received in some quarters. Right. And so I, I also feel like I grew up in a world that was very much sort of influenced for the worse by Wesleyan pietism. Yeah. And so, yeah, pretty much. I, I, I think, <laughs> Yeah, there, but there's, there's one a, worse than this. There's more that can be said about that, but but I also just want to say, you know, maybe he was a great guy, and and I'm dealing with straw man arguments. I'm totally open to that possibility. Um, so the other one, is, uh, another kind of character like this, and it, it would be Charles Finney. But but again, it's because like I grew up in the world that that, that this thinker helped create. Mm. So Finney is the theologian that's often associated with. Uh, you know, the anxious bench and, and sort of modern revivalism and that sort of thing. And, and again, I'm not even sure if you want to call him a capital T theologian. You know, I think he wrote books of theology, but was he a theologian? I don't know. Um, but I think a lot of the, the, the dark side of modern transactional Christianity can at least arguably be traced back to that influence mm -hmm. of, you know, like working on human psychology to bring about psychological effects and, and christen them and spiritualize them. That's what I associate with Finney. So again, um, if you're listening to this and you and Charles Finney get your tattoos at the same parlor, <laughs> Charles, I'm happy to meet with you anytime and, and I apologize if I've, I've gotten your legacy wrong. Okay. Next up is a theologian that's grown on you. This one's fun. And I'll go first again. I, I put down David Bentley Hart. Okay. And David Bentley Hart is an Eastern Orthodox theologian philosopher and he he has a few caricatures himself you know he he kind of is often seen as a very critical person um a very maybe a, a grumpy theologian you know somebody who's who's also somewhat polemical and i and i think some of those things are are true however i've read three of his books or so in the last couple of years and i just find him very brilliant in lots of respects so I will recommend The Experience of God. I think that was the first one of his that I read. And that's a book you're recommending, not just The Literal Experience <laughs> yeah. of God. Yes, his book. Okay. Yeah. 
the experience of God, being consciousness, being consciousness and bliss is the subtitle. Um, it really is a, an appropriation of the classical metaphysics, the classical theistic view of God, and kind of leveled against some of the more atheistic views of our day. And I just found it supremely wonderful to read. He, he is a great writer. Sometimes he's very bombastic, but he's grown on me. So I, I, yeah. I used to see him as somebody also that just hated Calvin, honestly. And he, he kind of does, but he's got a lot of good things to say. That's interesting. So I, I think, yeah, so I read a part of his book, The Beauty of the Infinite, which I think the publication of that was sort of how he sprang onto the scene. Mm-hmm. And people raved about that book. And I felt as I was reading it, this feeling that is always good when I feel it. It's it's the, I wish I'd written this slash, I wish I'd had this in grad school. Yeah. It would have really helped as I was sort of wading through, you know, literary theory and, and all of that stuff to have, you know, something like this. Um. So I guess my sort of experience with him has been the opposite of yours where he's grown on you. I think I, I sort of started like with a love affair and it has cooled, but not, I don't mean it in a negative way, but it's just, it's become more nuanced. Although I don't have any problem with theologians being grumpy or (laughs) temperamental or bombastic or meteoric, any of those kind of things that I associate with my sort of romantic idea of the artist, Mm -hmm. I, I will tolerate in um in in people who are doing work that i appreciate yeah. so okay. i think there's there's that now as far as theologians who've grown on me um i i'm st- struggling with this one a little bit and i think it's to do with my personality which is very um you know like if if i don't love you it's hard to keep reading you mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm like, hmm, I've fallen out of love yeah. with theologians. Have I ever sort of warmed to someone that, uh, that I, I didn't totally get to begin with? And okay, so we talked about him in a different context, but I think maybe, and, and this is one of those tentative, let's pencil him in kind of answers, but, but I'm going to put here uh, Thomas Aquinas. Hmm. And here's the rationale. Like, so, so I'm not a Thomist and, and I'm not an expert in all things Aquinas. I will say, though, that I've come to a greater appreciation of him over time and have, have let's say, dismantled my early caricatures, you know, that you often inherit from, from, other interlocutors and so i i have a new appreciation for him than i did at the beginning so yeah and and again i don't know where david bentley hart or thomas aquinas get their tattoos done (laughs) it could be the same place but uh but it'd be great if we we ran into them and could have this conversation with those guys i know that hart really he doesn't consider himself a a Thomist always because he's Eastern Orthodox, but he has a deep appreciation for him nonetheless. Yeah, and so. I think, you know, there's there's been 
in the last 20 years, kind of a, 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 a rediscovery and appreciation for Protestant scholasticism. Right. And I think you see this reflected in the Westminster Confession, even in its language of causation in the third chapter, mm-hmm. where um, I... I'm not saying that that there are no valid critiques of Aquinas, but I do think that the dependence of later theology, including Reformation theology, on medieval theology, in particular, you know, Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> is is a like link that we're now much more conscious of, and and the positive aspect of that I think is much more apparent. Yeah. Okay, we've got a three left. Three left. The next one is most overrated theologian. Ooh. This is where you get to offend people. I'll go I'll go first. I had a, I had somebody else in mind, but I think I need to say Karl Barth. Oh. Oh. <laughs> and wow. Yeah. So I went to Princeton Seminary, right. which is the seminary of Karl Barth. I think they're revoking your degree as we speak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, yes. You know, I, I had a professor there who once said under her breath that Karl Barth could make, could make, essentially he could like affirm anything with his, with his theology that he mm. could get anything to work because he had this idea of sort of this dialogical back and forth between God's yes and God's no or, or some, something evil and something good. And, and essentially, I just got sick of that kind of thinking, dialogical thinking. Everyone's always into dialogical thinking. Um, yeah, I, I think that people thought that Karl Barth was sort of this big shift in the, the story of theology and, and the church. But I, I just don't see it. I don't know. I, I guess yeah. I don't know. I think he was responding to some issues that I never really saw as issues myself. That's part of the problem. Do you so. think like, so I've always felt that your attitude towards Bart probably has a lot to do with whether or not you think like theological liberalism did away with the old orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you believe that the critique of old liberalism was so profound that one could no longer hold to orthodoxy in the traditional sense, then Barth's kind of neo-orthodoxy feels like a return to something that is, you know, like, the the best that we can have mm-hmm. and is stated in beautiful ways so that even if it sometimes feels as if there's no there there, the way that we say it makes it feel substantive. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas if you do not accept that old liberalism drove the dagger into the heart of orthodoxy, then the, you might appreciate things that Barth said, but you don't necessarily see the project as yes. the be all and end all. Yes, exactly. That- I think that's exactly it. And in a sense, you should already be able to see this is why I prefer Bavink. You know, I think like Bavink's orthodoxy is still sound and we don't necessarily need Bart <laughs> mm-hmm. to come in and like update things. So and of course, people think differently about that. But sure. Yeah. 
you're not saying he's the worst. We already pointed out no. who the worst was. Oh, yeah. You're just saying overrated. Just overrated. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it yeah. has to be someone, you know, that's highly rated, obviously. Right. Yeah. No, of course. <laughs> that that makes sense. Wow. What are you thinking? That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, yeah, I, I'm processing that. And I'm just thinking of of various people I know who love Carl Barth and, <laughs> and, and how I'll be able to tell them, talk to Cameron. Don't, don't argue with me. Talk to Cameron. Mm. Okay, so for me, most overrated. Hmm. This is, again, a tough one. And maybe it just shows my sort of lowbrow way because... I think my tendency is to think more in terms of popularizers than, than mm. capital T theologians, you know, and I think there are yeah. a lot of people who we point to as if they're, you know, trafficking in profundities and, and they really aren't. Um, but in terms of profound theologians who are overrated, uh, I'm realizing I should have said like Arius when I wanted my worst. Yeah. <laughs> and then I could have said overrated for, for Wesley and for Finney. Mm. I did this all wrong. It's um, yeah. Mm. So I think, Oh man, it, there's a part of me and this is the mischievous part. And I don't even know if this is even what I really believe, but but, you know, having said that Thomas Aquinas has grown on me, there's a part of me that wants to say Aquinas is also overrated. And mm. I, I, I would have to like really, really qualify that because even as I hear myself saying it, it sounds like, like the babblings of a fool, which it may very well be. I only mean it in this sense that I, I think there's a, there's a way of approaching Aquinas similar to a way that some people have of approaching Calvin as if it all ended here mm -hmm. and that simply having, you know, this guy's work gives you everything you need. And indeed maybe is an adequate substitute for scripture itself. <laughs> yeah. And in that sense, and in that sense only, I'm, I'm going to say Aquinas right now, very tentatively in pencil just because I feel like part of that um, revival of interest in scholasticism has felt like that kind of a, if we could turn the clock back um, and all we had was, was Aquinas, we would be good to go. Mm -hmm. But again, only in that sense. And, and um, you know, if, if you're listening Aquinas, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> treat me gently. Yeah. I mean, I know Protestants who would, who would say that if they could pick one theologian, it would be him. Yeah. One theologian that's overrated. Or no, that's the no, greatest? That, that they would stick with. Yeah. Yes. Right. If they were on a desert Island. Right. They would take the Summa. Right. And that was it. So, well, I mean, and, and fair enough. I mean, that, that would, <laughs> that would last a while. Keep you engaged <laughs> for your period of, of, yeah exile <laughs> okay yeah that was a tough one this one two more so uh most underrated theologian mm. kind of fun but probably less fun to listen to but I, I i can say i think john webster 
is an underrated theologian. And most of you are probably like, huh? He actually just passed away in 2016. So, and passed away, I think, quite young. Or, you know, in his 50s or 60s. He was a theologian and professor at Cambridge. And honestly, just wrote some really solid works of dogmatics. Ironically, he himself was a Bardian <laughs> and maybe maybe a student of Bard. Actually, I'm not I'm not totally sure on that, but I would recommend his book Holiness, which I actually read every Lent. I, I find it just a phenomenal piece of dogmatic theology. Very refreshing. And you know, I think he was a he was actually sort of someone who's whose faith sort of deconstructed or began in this more liberal Christianity. And then he returned to some older sources like like Augustine and and the reformers and ended up going back to a sort of orthodoxy, maybe neo-orthodoxy under Bart, but is just a, a really wonderful thinker. So highly recommended and underrated. Oh, that's fascinating. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> Um, so for me, for underrated, there's there's a few names that come to mind, and and so before I sort of name my underrated theologian, I'll, I'll kind of go through a couple of runners up. Okay. Um, and 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 maybe like in aggregate. So I think there are a lot of Reformation era theologians who have been sort of subsumed in our memory by Calvin, you know, there's just this sense that, um, you know, Calvin is the one who, who fleshed it all out. And the, the reality of the fact that he was, you know, in conversation with many different theologians, uh, in his generation and then the generation afterwards is kind of lost even on people in the reformed tradition, Mm. right? So that a lot of these names are, are lost to us. And so, there are, you know, great theologians of the the 16th and 17th centuries in our tradition that we're just not really conversant with for that reason. I think of um, Bootser would be a contemporary of Calvin's who was influential on him. Um, obviously, you know, they're Lutheran theologians. You think of like Melanchthon and yeah, and uh, others who were hugely influential at that time and were kind of peers of, of Calvin, like people he would have certainly regarded that way. And uh, we talked in our Just War episode about um, Pierre Viret mm. and, you know, there's others that you could name. I People call him Vermigli. I know that can't be how you, Peter Marker, Vermigli, it's got to be Vermigli or something. Yes, but, right. But, uh, you know, like, so other theologians were very influential in their day um, another one, and, and this is one I'm not as familiar with, but because of the Davenant Institute mm-hmm. and listening to some lectures there, you know, John Davenant, who's mm-hmm. a, a delegate to, uh, the, the Senate of Dort, one of the English mm-hmm. representatives and, uh, interesting there, but, but I'm actually going to do a curveball thing and go to, uh, Anglican theology and say that, Thomas Cranmer hmm. is going to get the nod from me. So 
if you ever read Thomas Cranmer on the real presence in the Lord's Supper, you'll find a, a beautiful articulation of a reformed view of real presence that is like everything that you could want it to be. And and to me, in my mind, like even if you know his prayer book contribution and and other contributions were were not there just having read that would be enough for me to say you know we should be reading him more widely in the broader church um and yeah so so i'm just gonna to go with him and and this one not out of obscurity but just because you know over time even famous names are forgotten and so cranmer is far from you know overlooked right but but in uh, some circles and you know i think certain names can go underappreciated in in certain yeah. denominations so it's, yeah i think and it's we all important. have a tendency i think to 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 only sort of you know lionize who we perceive as our theologians yeah and not to appreciate the contributions of others and so you know I, as a Reformed Christian, you know, I, I think very broadly of the the Reformation and and you know who counts as us, and mm-hmm. so I'm certainly I don't look at someone like Cranmer as being outside my tradition, but um, but definitely underappreciated within it. Let's say, yeah. Okay, so the last category is the greatest theologian of all time, and. I suppose that could be also your favorite theologian of all time, but I'm going to throw out a different one I haven't named yet, which is Augustine. So I think most people know who Augustine is and why I would name him as the greatest of all time. But I I just think in terms of his influence, the volume of his work that he put out over his lifetime, his his struggle with so many real human things as seen in his confessions and just his the beauty of his rhetoric and yet his faithfulness and his honestly his his creativity and his biblical interpretation for his time all of that and more i just think make him fantastic i don't think he was right on everything but maybe he was (laughs) (laughs) and being right about everything is certainly not a qualification (laughs) for you know, any of these categories, no. I think we would stipulate that um, we don't have to agree with everything to to admire and, and respect and right. and love the influence of, of a theologian. And mm-hmm. and I'm so sad that you got to go first on this one, because now that you've taken Augustine, it's it's hard to think of anyone who has comparable firepower, really. Right. I mean, there's a. It was Alfred North Whitehead who said that the whole Western intellectual tradition consists in a series of footnotes to Plato. And I think you could argue mm-hmm. something for theology along those lines with Augustine. Yeah. Certainly, the Reformation owes an incredible debt to Augustine's thought. And yeah, so, so I'm going to definitely concede Okay. That your greatest of all time is going to be better than any greatest of all time that I can come up with. Um, but 
I wonder if it would be possible for us to let's say award a co-prize or a mm. silver medal or something like that to Athanasius. Okay. Because it seems to me that in the defining sort of theological fight of early Christianity, although again, like, like we've already said before, a lot of the names get lost and it gets reduced down to like, Athanasius by himself defended the <laughs> the doctrine of the Trinity against all comers. And of course, there were other, you know, church fathers involved in that struggle. But but um, but just when it comes to that that you know anti-Arius mm-hmm. articulation of orthodoxy, uh, I think Athanasius should at least get honorable mention on that front. Totally. Totally. Well, that's, that's it. I think this has been fun. I want to reiterate what we said before, which is that of course we're talking about ideas here and not people per se. And I appreciate what you said about being able to glean from theologians with whom we don't agree on every point. Right. Something to take away. And actually the more theology you read, the more you'll find that there is no theologian that you agree with on every point. Mm -hmm. And it's, an important realization that all theologians are wrong somewhere and that ultimately we want to be guided by scripture and, and also recognize that even when we're guided by scripture, we ourselves are going to be wrong about stuff. And so we need to have some epistemic humility. And so maybe an exercise like this helps. Uh, I promise our listeners that we will not, change formats and do twitter memes every episode but this seemed like a fun one just to kind of work through and and maybe we'll come back a year from now and do it over and see if any of our answers are the same as they were this time That's all the time we have for now. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.